Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. So glad for you to join us again. Another week in uh, it's it's Friday afternoon in the big town, Scott. Yeah, man. Scott, he's already it's, rubbing his forehead in frustration yeah. and and in pain. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great, Bob. It's not great. <laughs> it's, it's uh, it is uh, we we've got a, a gully washer of a rainstorm today. It's not a sunny Friday afternoon. So, listeners, if you are hear any thunder, water splattering bright bolts of lightning or if we suddenly lose connection in the middle of this um it's because we have a, a terrible power grid in our neck of the woods and we're just trying to do the best we can does anyone know if rain water kills covid like maybe if we have just like a rainstorm and we can just wash all wash of the covid you just know? gonna wash that virus route out of my hair no like, it's uh well scott if you look at florida which gets a considerable amount of rain yeah, but it's salt. Say, is it? Do they get salt water rain though? Is that what? Do they? I guess rain is never salt water, is it? That's no, can't, it's fresh. Can't be salt water. Yeah, I don't think so. Can no, salinated rain. I don't think you can. I think it's too heavy. Is what about acid rain? That was a big thing when we were kids. Is that still a risk? You know, we're we're it's what is it? Let's see here. Uh, one minute twenty six seconds in, and we're on acid <laughs> rain. So it's gonna be that kind of a day. One of those. Uh, well, Scott, let's uh, let's get into the topics at hand, and we've got some guests will be joining us in just a few minutes. Very excited about that. But first, of course, COVID is still around; it is not washed away. Uh, it still sucks quite a quite a quite a bit. I've been a little frustrated. I've been more punchy on social media this week than in weeks past. Yeah, because uh, school started, and I'm really effing anxious <laughs> yeah that that i think that's entirely reasonable scott uh i haven't seen today's updates do you know how many new cases we had today uh you know let me pull up in here and see i i don't have that pulled up because i had been paying attention to the press conference the first press conference incidentally that we've heard uh from the state department of health uh in over a month um, they started off by saying that we have replied. They said we've been we've answered all of your questions, and several of our local journalists were like, uh, "No, no, you haven't. That's not true." And held up held up emails that said we're not going to answer your questions. Right. The the COVID situation, um, it's really it's not great. I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. If uh, if you if you ask, apparently the health department, um, the COVID situation is is you know we need to need to monitor it but no reason to be uh, overly concerned uh the governor keeps sending out press releases in between bites of caviar um and then meanwhile hospitals are uh near capacity um hospitalizations are growing pediatric hospitalizations are growing um i think ou had to transfer a patient today to boise to boise idaho not kansas city not dallas not houston um idaho because that was the closest bed that they could get can i ask like a logistics question about that in case you know so um obviously this patient is in need of i assume icu or some kind of higher level of care right and there's no spaces around so they're going to be transferred several thousand miles um, to another state how does that patient get there like what type of vehicle and who pays for it in terms of who pays for it, that is a question I don't know the answer to. I think that would depend largely on what kind of insurance they have. It might also depend on for the reason of the transfer. Like if the transfer is because like there's a, like the facility doesn't have room or there's a need of a service that the facility doesn't offer, I think that that 
can impact it too. Um, in terms of how it happens, um, so there are first you have to have, so first you got to like put out a request and say like, we need to transfer this patient. And there has to be an accepting physician at whatever facility, this a doctor who says like, I'm going to take care of this patient. Ideally, there's a phone conversation <clears throat> where a physician to physician or, you know, provider to provider, whoever's taking care of that patient where the where the two doctors talk to each other and there's a handoff about what's going on with the patient why they're being transferred um and then they get in an ambulance and to go to a place like idaho they get on a plane um so they have just like they have air ambulances um that are that are uh, most people think of helicopters you know you think of a life flight they have planes that do that too um so and and that and that doesn't even have to be to go as far as idaho you can take uh, planes we'll transfer patients from here to dallas um i had a patient once uh, it was a kid uh, that we sent to, to children's um, at OU and she had to be transferred to children's in Dallas for a bunch of reasons. Um, and she went by, she went by jet. Um, so it, it's usually going to be an airplane if it's not a like, you know, pretty short, short distance. I know they will also fly organs for transplant. Yeah, the airplane. I learned that from Grey's Anatomy, but then it was confirmed in real life by a much more reputable source. I was on a flight with someone that had one of those little igloo coolers with the stickers, and I was yep. like, "Can I ask, is that actually a body part?" And they said, "Yes." Like, and it happened to work out. They said, "You know, sometimes we will charter a jet, but this plane was leaving and it had a seat open, and they called that first, and so the person just flew to you know Minneapolis or whatever, and like dropped off the kidney and then went back." And I was like. That's a weird day at work. I'll be honest. <laughs> after after they said that it was a body part, you should have been like, "Is it yours?" Just <laughs> see it, what they see what they said. Let's let's play twenty questions. Can I guess? Is it is it an organ or an appendage? Is this is that is that going to be your kidney? Right. Yeah. Did you go pick right. it up yourself? Did you get to pick it out? <laughs> it's, well, we, there's a like a jewel case where you get to pick several options. There, yeah, I think it is. Can you hear? Can you hear this rain? I can't in my house. I mean, I'm in a room with windows all around me. So I am upstairs and it's like reverberating through my headphones. Yeah. Um, no, but man, the COVID situation, the COVID situation is not great. I will say there have been some, there have been some encouraging developments. Um, so the state's largest public school district, Oklahoma city public schools, they announced today that they will have uh, a so-called mask mandate. A mask will be required for anyone who's on school property. Parents are able to opt out out of this um, is my understanding. Uh, parents can say that they have some exemption where they don't want their kid to wear a mask and that will be that will be honored. But, um, you know, I think in my mind, ideally, you would have opt outs that are limited to like a note from a doctor or something that says a kid doesn't have to wear a mask um, as opposed to like a parental opt out. But I do think this is an improvement. Having the default be everyone wears a mask unless you specifically say in writing like my kid's not going to wear a mask versus having the default no one can unless you specifically tell your kid to. I think that's definitely an improvement safer for our kids, um, safer for our teachers, for sure. Hopefully the majority of our teachers are vaccinated. Um, you know, there's been some other public school districts that have said that they're taking similar action. Um, a, there's a charter school district, Santa Fe South has said that they're going to require masks with a similar parental opt out. Um, 
uh, Tulsa Public Schools has uh, said that they would be open to pursuing litigation to uh, to challenge uh, Senate Bill 865 or 856 or 568, which whatever whatever you were circling that. Yes. Um, Additionally, um, additionally, uh, the Oklahoma State Medical Association. Um, the Oklahoma State Medical Association has uh, filed a lawsuit in conjunction with some some doctors. Uh, they're trying to go after this bill. So I think there's definitely um, some momentum um, on, on the part of the public to try and um, improve the public health response that we're getting in Oklahoma because we don't see the leadership that we would hope for coming from, in my opinion, the State Department of Health or from the uh, executive. It's interesting because there's, you know... Um, this this bill 658 right um so one of the bill's uh, authors uh, kevin west he came out today and he was like this is this is ridiculous so the the backstory here this bill says that, st- that boards of education can't institute mask mandates or vaccine requirements oklahoma city public schools said okay well our board can't do it but it doesn't say anything in the law about whether or not our superintendent can do it so the superintendent issued kind of the school version i guess of an executive order saying we're going to require masks um, um, as an aside, we talk a lot on this show about poorly written legislation. Um, you know, I would say the intent of this law is bad, but even if the intent was good, it sounds like it's just not a very well written bill. This is why it's it matters. It's not watertight. You might yeah, say, right? Like this is, this is, this is why it matters who writes your laws and whether the person who writes the laws is someone who has expertise in understanding how laws work. But I digress. Um, but uh, he came out and said, this is disappointing. You know, school boards, you know, superintendents derive their authority from school boards. School boards can't delegate authority they don't have. And under the law, they don't have this authority. Um, but then <laughs> then Majority Leader Eccles, floor leader of, of, of the Republicans in the House, he gave an interview. He was like, yeah, no, I think this is. This is totally fine. This is exactly in concert with the law. There's nothing, nothing in the law says school school superintendents can't do this. So you know, yeah, I think it's fine. So it seems like there is some dissension. because it gets them off the hook. Yeah, dis- dissension within the ranks. The governor's office has said we are we are sure happy to see that public schools are honoring parental choice by issuing mask mandates with a parental opt out. Um, you know, so it, yeah, it's. Yeah, yeah, and and I, y- y'all listeners, I rub my temples a lot more than Andy does. I'm the temple rubber between the two of us. Andy was just rubbing his temples. That's that's where we're. I'm at. also drinking bourbon for what that's worth, and it's only like <laughs> you know middle of the afternoon. But uh, yeah, so just to like, I want to recap that what you just said, Scott, because it's important. That I think listeners catch right. The legislature passed a law with the intent of forbidding schools from having mask mandates, right? That was the overt attempt uh, or intent. The governor signed the law because he wants that. Now there's a big spike in COVID. Suddenly everyone's like, oh shit. (laughs) We didn't think this was going to happen, right? Like we thought it was going to get better and we could just like put it on our postcards. Like we protected your freedom. They told us COVID was over. They said it was over. Right. So now it's clear that they should not have done that. And I, and I think given if, if COVID if they knew it was coming, they wouldn't have done it, right? But they did, and here we are. And so now the options are the governor issues an executive order, which allows districts to institute mask mandates, or the legislature would go back for special session to to repeal that law. Something have to be done. And that either one of those means 
politicians have to admit they were wrong, right? And they have, and they don't like undoing things they just did, much like the courts. And so by, I'm going to air quotes, finding the loophole in the law, in the poorly written law, this is like a win for everybody. It allows all the districts who want to, to say, hey, we're going to mandate masks. You know, you can opt out if you'd like. It allows the governor to be like, you know, we we still uh, it's it's a personal responsibility. I, I, it's personal responsibility. I never issued a mass mandate, right? Vote right. for me for and, president, right? Oklahoma's open for business, and uh, and then it allows the legislature to not to just be quiet. And I'm impressed, honestly, with Eccles ratifying this and the fact that he said it publicly. Right, that's a big deal. And so I'm gonna, you know, credit where it's due. At least he said it. Um, and shame on Representative West for. The other antics. I mean, there's a contingent, right, that are trying to come back in to to fix this in a different way. Like there are some Republicans who are trying to <laughs> they're trying to call a special session to make it worse, to right, make it right. even harder to protect right. children from a deadly disease. Right. That's right. And I I really think, and maybe I'll start this. I don't know, but I think there should be a movement, right? A, a hashtag like parents against COVID, because if you're not with us, then you're for COVID. Like this is the it's as simple as it is, right? There's, there are, there's an easy way to reduce the spread and to keep our kids safe. And then there's everything else. And or we could, with us, we, we could start one that says hashtag politicians for pandemics and then just tag all the legislatures that and just uh, start right, teachers, yeah. politics for pandemics. We've got a comment now from uh, Representative Roberts. Representative Sean Roberts has weighed in. Uh, says quote i'm gonna have to try and get through this was this just now yeah. just on the, uh, on the twitter pub, public schools knowingly violating state law borders on anarchy and we must hold any government entity that knowingly and willfully violates state law accountable house and senate legislators overwhelmingly passed sb 658 because opting into masks in school is what the people wanted Public school boards willingly defying state statutes and the will of parents will not be tolerated. I have three comments. One, any government entity that knowingly willfully violates state law being held accountable. What would Senator Roberts say about all the times he's voted for the government of Oklahoma to knowingly and willfully uh, ignore federal law? Number one. Number two. Or um, their own law. Right. Or their own law. Right. Um, also, opting into mass in schools is what the people wanted, not according to any polling data, including um, local Republican polling firms. And three, public school boards willingly defying state statutes and the will of parents, it's not the will of parents, will not be tolerated. It's not at all clear what Representative Roberts can do about it. So um, there's no criminal, like this is not a criminal offense. This is not in the criminal code. There's no penalty associated with the law. So I guess they can try and take these schools to court, um, um, which I'm sure will happen anyway um it's just yeah and, it's a lot of bluster well and to be clear he is blustering about school boards mandating masks and that is not what okcps is doing it is the superintendent that is the very crux of what they're doing right so he can say that and and be truthful like be accurate but that's not what's happening and so if you're going to complain about something you got to complain about the thing that's happening not something different but uh, yeah, it's a it's a point well taken. And again, I just think you're either for the virus or you're against it. And freedom is still there. And then honestly, like there's a lot of stuff that I understand and might even agree with about 
encroachment on personal freedoms. But wearing a mask when you go to school is not one of them. There are other options. Um, and it's just a that's the way I feel about it. Also, you know, as I've already said on the show and I guess online, as you all know, my mom died from COVID. And if one of my kids gets sick, the gloves are off. Like I'm coming for you. This is <laughs> I'm not I'm not tolerating that any further. Um, and I will say, I don't, not to be disparaging, but of the members of the legislature that have spoken up about this from the Republican Party today, Leader Eccles is a educated, trained, experienced attorney who is very knowledgeable in the law, and some of these other guys are not, right? And so it, just because someone is elected doesn't mean that they're an expert on any given topic. Uh, but when it comes to like legal issues, I'm going to defer to the attorneys and not to the cabinet makers. Nothing against that. That's an important, I mean, carpentry and those skills are very important, but it's maybe out of your wheelhouse of expertise and uh, you should not not be out front on that issue. And just for, you know, some additional context of the state of things. Um, so uh, Oklahoma City Public Schools has been in session for four days, right? And after four days of school, um, COVID cases went from four, which was three kids and one adult, to 119, 88 students and 31 staff that have been diagnosed. Yes, right. I mean, and that's and that's and and it could easily be three, four, five times that. Um, also, good news: um, OKCPS is offering a one thousand dollars stipend for any staff who get vaccinated. So you know what? Uh, I I am proud of my local public school district. Um, I think you, that they are. Do they have any job openings? This may be a, maybe I can make a thousand bucks real quick. Yeah. Uh, well, so we'll be watching that very closely. I mean, this has been developing literally by the hour. That's a big deal. So the other thing that happened yesterday that was, that was well-planned is the Census Bureau has officially released the 2020 census data. Now, uh, this is more in my wheelhouse than than the doctor. So I'll talk about this. Um, as you all know, last year was the census. It took a long time because there was COVID. That meant processing the data took longer. So normally this data is released in like March or April. And this year it wasn't until August. And the data release yesterday is all of the data, but it's like in a, what they called a legacy format. Like, in fact, they said they would be releasing the data on DVDs and USB drives, if that's any indication of legacy format. On they also are, DVDs? Yeah, they'll mail it to you if you want to. If you want it on a DVD, and uh, for those of you listening at home, that's a what about la- what about Laserdisc? That's right. Yeah, it's on a, a eight track. Um, and so, I mean, they also like have it available for download, and but it's in like the raw format, like you know whatever the raw for the CSV files and all that stuff. Right. So it's, you have to have a, a software system to make sense of the data to use it. The, the daily Oklahoman or the, the Oklahoman, I guess they're not the daily Oklahoman anymore. They have a new website that I just found today. Um, If you go to, I think it's data.oklahoman.com. Um, they have uh, have the data on the, yeah data.oklahoman.com. They've got all the data loaded in, and it's got a bunch of maps. It's a pretty decent, handy website, um, and all of the other platforms are in the process of loading it into their system. Right, so 
everything from Maptitude, which is the high dollar fancy software that legislature uses for redistricting to freeware like Dave's redistricting app. They said they think it'll take them about four days to get it loaded in for all the states. So we'll be watching that. And as I've mentioned, the reason that this data is important, one, um, is it lets us know more information about our country and our fellow people, right? It was very interesting during the press conference when they released the data, they highlighted some of the aspects of it, like the the multi-racial component. So this census um, counted, or not counted, but captured race and ethnicity data than previous censuses have. Now, they, they admitted that they tweak, they change the process by which they capture race and ethnicity data almost every census. Like, you know, a lot changes over 10 years in science and uh, anthropology and how they count this stuff. And so it's a little bit different every time. And even since they've done the census, they have learned about how they can do it better next time, right? So they'll change how they do it again to continue this improvement process. But this year, or last year, the census captured race and ethnicity data in a way that allowed respondents to self-identify in a more granulated way, right? So if you um, if you know or you uh, identify as someone that is of like multiple ethnic backgrounds, right? You were better able to report it that way if you so choose. Uh, and so what we saw across the country, of course, is that America is less like less only white, right? So people who would only identify as being white, non-Hispanic, non-other gender or other races, um, it is smaller. And in fact, in California, um, California, the white non-Hispanic population group is no longer the majority. I think it only comprises like 39.6% of the population. And so that means that no single racial or ethnic group in California has the majority. They really are a plurality um, of, of colors. And so we saw that across the country. Other major trends we saw is that cities, metro areas grew and rural areas shrank, right? Or metro areas gained population, rural areas lost population. America as a whole did not grow very much. This was the slowest decade of growth since the 1930s, which of course contained like World War I and the Great Depression and lots of uh, bad stuff. So this was very interesting. Um, and then uh, Scott's got a question. I just feel that it is important to point out that World War One did not take place in the 1930s. That's right. I said it and I knew I, I was wrong. I was waiting for that. I just feel like that's an important caveat. <laughs> yes, my apologies. The Great Depression <laughs> was in the 1930s. World War II started in the late 30s. There we go. That's what I was referring to. But thanks for the clear. <laughs> thanks for the correction. I'll issue the correction right now. Scott, Scott's like watering a plant and then jumps in. Hang on. Historical well, nuggets. No, wrong, it's... Andy. It, so just what is happening is um, my dog, uh, Juno, who features herself regularly on the show, uh, does not like storms. And so sometime in the middle of when I was talking and the rain started, she crawled under the desk that I'm sitting at and is now laying here on top of my feet. And so I'm reaching down to pet her head because every time it thunders, she looks at me like, what is happening? <laughs> and she's a husky. So that's. That's a big, uh, a big fluffy ball on your feet. Yes. <laughs> so uh, the census data, anyway, it's very 
interesting. They will be releasing the data in a more user-friendly format in September. So if you are interested in learning more about America, go to census.gov. Also, the data will be used for redistricting, right? So that's the uh, that's the the big prize here. Uh, listeners, as you know, Oklahoma has five congressional districts, and um, they will all be with redrawn in the next two months. Um, they haven't yet. Uh, the legislature has not yet announced the dates for when the public has to submit maps for consideration, nor the dates of special session, which they will call. They have indicated it will be in October, but we don't know when. Uh, and so the next few weeks will be, I think, very interesting, right? Be- also, because Oklahoma knew the statewide population, but we did not know the population of individual counties or cities until yesterday. And it is, I mean, Oklahoma City was dramatically higher than expected. Tulsa was dramatically higher. Congressional District 1, which is Tulsa, is actually the most populous congressional district, which was not at all expected. And all of this means they are going to have to come back and tweak the maps for the state legislative districts. Scott. Yeah. So this is, this was a question I was going to ask you and I have not had time to dig into this yet. Um, I've just been looking at, you know, looking at the Twitter as one does. Um, there was a lot of buzz, um, not just from not from like hacks, but from like actual political people like Dave Washerman at redistrict, um, was noting this, uh, Nate Cohn had commented some on this, like people that really, um, do, do data analysis really well saying, you know, there's been a lot of talk that you could see the nationally, you could see the, the Dems lose like five, six, seven seats, maybe more, um, based on redistricting. That was the projection that there might be enough change. There might be enough change from redistricting alone to, to cost Democrats control of the house. Um, but then there's been some talk today that like, because of the way the census data has come out, that, that that actually may not be the case because there has been pretty significant population loss um, in some rural areas with population gain in metropolitan areas that the the redistricting process may not look uh, quite as quite as scary for the Dems as 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 people had thought. What's your what's your take on that? Um, I would say the population trends are likely in Democrats' favor. However, it is largely Republican state legislatures that will be drawing the maps. And so they, I think they may just have to be more overt in their gerrymandering efforts, right? And and my hope is that we see other states like Oklahoma, where the legislature has more or less said they are not using political data to draw the maps. Now that may be because they gerrymandered so perfectly 10 years ago that they don't really have to tweak the maps very much in order to get a majority this time. Uh, but we will, we'll wait and see. I, I don't expect it's going to be super positive for the Democrats, but uh, all of this stuff, right? This is a, a, a great example of what I really believe. And that's that politicians shouldn't be drawn political maps. Like it's a huge conflict of interest and it is not fair to voters of any stripe, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, anybody else. It's a big deal. So, you know, one th- one thing I do wonder, and I know we'll move on because we have, we have great guests, great uh, guests that are waiting in the, in the, uh, in the green room here. I do wonder if what we might see is you know to your point and i i lost connection for a minute so if you said this then i apologize you can, you can cut it in post um but 
um i wonder if 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 you know you mentioned forcing the r's to kind of have a or republican state legislatures to be more overt in their gerrymander i wonder if it might force them in order to pick up the number of seats that they want to draw districts that are less safe right because what can what what you can see happen is you can kind of take a task like okay all right say the r's want to pick up 10 seats right Uh, but to do that they have to they have to create 10 new districts that are you know republican majority but that majority isn't isn't real big or they can say we can get six new seats by drawing six really safe districts i wonder if this is going to force them to draw more unsafe districts than they were hoping for um which which might mean that in a wave type year you know like what we saw in 2018 you could see you could see the dems overcome those gerrymanders right like if you draw if the r's draw a district that's r you know r plus 15 in even in a wave election that's really really difficult to overcome but if instead you have a bunch of districts that are r plus five I mean that could flip under the right circumstances to D plus one or two, and to me, I that's what, what, what I wonder if the census is if the census data means that you're going to see about the same number of seats shift, but instead of safe gerrymanders, they're going to be gerrymanders that are a lot more tenuous. Yeah, a little more purple. Um, that's a that's an interesting point, and that's I think certainly possible. The other thing that is interesting from the conversations I've had with folks across the country about this that are working on commissions and and otherwise involved in redistricting is that the thinking right from a few years ago about um, drawing districts that are competitive where that was like a high a high value priority um, that is not necessarily the case anymore because we are seeing with more recent data right that voters are self-sorting geographically that is we choose to live in an area around other people who are like us um, politically and otherwise and so the the need to pack voters into a district is like less on the map drawers because we did it on our own right and so it makes it in some ways easier to gerrymander and if you are a trying if you're then trying to draw competitive districts you might have to like crack communities of interest and that is also a bad thing. And so that's not to say that competitiveness should not be considered, but I think there's a, a nationwide on, on the average, like a desire to deprioritize competitiveness and instead prioritize actual representation of, you know, communities of interest of, of racial ethnic groups um, of drawing districts that are compact like some of the other measures. Uh, and and so that's like, an, a, in my mind, a significant change. And I think even for in the last, you know, th- two years, two and a half years that like I've been working on redistricting as a, as a main focus, that thinking has evolved even during that short period of time. So um, who knows what's going to happen over the next like two months. Uh, but that's the other big deal, right, is that all of this has to be done in the next couple of months before people meet the deadlines for residency so they can file for office next year, especially for stuff like, I don't know, the U S Congress, right? Like there's a lot of folks that got to know which district they live in, particularly in areas like Oklahoma County that 
are already split between three congressional districts or are at risk of being further divided, um, it's a big deal. So we'll, uh, we'll keep our thumb on the, our fingers on the pulse of the redistricting. All right, Scott, let's talk about our guests. What? <laughs> Joining us today are uh, two lovely folks we've had on. These are repeat guests, friends of the pod, friends. you might say. Yeah. Um, they are the staff of Sally's List, executive director and founder, Sarah Jane Rose. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us back. Thanks for being here. And program manager, program coordinator. I forget which which the, the word was, but uh, Alyssa Fisher. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, how are you doing? I, I forget what her title is all the time. <laughs> I've given her many. That's what right. We won't ask who's Batman and who's Robin in this <laughs> duo, uh, but we're so glad to have you back. So it's been... I was in the before times when you were last on the show. We got to meet in person instead of on the computer. What's been happening? We've had an election since then. Um, what's new with Sally's List? Well, we had an election. It was not nearly as delightful as 2018, but we actually held steady um, with our presence in the legislature, which was better than a lot of other states did in terms of uh, progressive female representation. Um, we've just been plodding along, uh, Alyssa and someone, a consultant, have done a lot of rural outreach, which was something for years we've been talking about and um, just just hadn't gotten around to, but we have the time and the, the bandwidth. So there's been a lot of that going on, trying to find women to run for municipal seats in rural areas because we, we, we like many other people, don't uh, pin too many hopes on uh, rural seats going to uh, re re progressive Democrat uh, House and Senate, you know, members. So uh, that's been going on. Um, coincidentally, we start our 2021 training tomorrow. Um, it's going to be virtual this time around. It was in person in 2019. We're doing it over three successive Saturdays from nine to two with a nice break in the middle because we've all learned that five hours straight on Zoom is, is about as torturous as anything could be. We've got some great presenters, a lot of new presenters this time, which is fun for us. Uh, we've worked harder to get uh, presenters of color, which was pretty much absent in 2019. We have not, our, our greatest frustration the last few months is getting people to pay attention to the fact that 2022 is coming. So I, we cast our net far and wide for participants in this. And we asked for women who are interested in running now, self-identifying women who might want to run later on, a couple years, four years, six years, eight years, who may want to run 10 years from now, aren't quite sure. We've asked for people who might be interested in working on campaigns. And finally, women who just want to know more about the process. And out of a ton of social media, presence, email to, the, to, to our membership, that's what you call them, and a lot of personal emails. We, we have 15 people signed up tomorrow. I, I was worried it was going to be about five or six. Uh, the good thing is because it's Zoom, we're recording the whole thing. So a lot of people aren't going to, we, we've got five candidates, five or six candidates attending. We'll get a lot more candidates uh, once summer's over and people are starting to think about the future again, if they would if, if they can bear to think about the future of politics, which is hard. People just don't want to talk about it. 
you know, so that's something that I think people, you know, we talk about this a lot that people say, I don't want to talk. I, I hate talking about politics or my family. We don't talk about politics or you, you shouldn't bring up politics at Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. And, and my answer is like, no, that's absolutely when you should bring it up. Right. Like in part, part of the issue with our politics is that we don't talk that we don't talk about it enough. How do you approach like how, how do you, how, what is your approach to getting people to kind of think, you know, yeah, this is a thing you should do. Like, not only should you talk about politics, but you should think about running for office. You should think about being, being involved. How do you, what's, what's kind of your hook to get people over that? Oh, I'm afraid of politics or I'm, I don't care about politics to getting involved. Uh, we're very honest. I think the first thing we say is, yeah, you should be afraid. And we're afraid. It's, it's not, we're at, adding a component to this training on security because I'm, actually a martial artist and I've taught women self-defense for several years before I did this. And women often don't know when to report threats. They feel reticent. Maybe it wasn't really a threat. Maybe when this person said, I'm going to find you and kill you, maybe it was just, they were just mad. Uh, so we, we want to really work on women to understand when it's time to call the cops, uh, candidates. What do you do when you knock on a door and someone opens it with a gun in their hand? And, and that's been a problem our candidates of color have already faced in years past. It's hard. I mean, if we have friends who say we can't discuss politics at Thanksgiving, Alyssa, I mean, we tend to say don't go to Thanksgiving. <laughs> We're yeah. not very. I guess to answer your question uh, more specifically, I'm also very sorry if you can hear rustling. I have a cat very excited about the rainstorm right now, so I apologize. Um, I would, you know, what I always say is to people who are like, oh, I don't really like politics. I don't really like this. I don't really like that. Well, I try to think about something they do like. It's like, well, do you like bicycles? Do you like feeling like you can ride your bicycle where you would like to go? Because frankly, I don't feel safe riding a bicycle on most of the streets and I pay taxes. You know, I, <laughs> I uh, do all of these things. It's like, if do you feel safe on your bicycle and if they say no, I'm like, well, what have you done? You know, like, you know, you can do stuff, reach out to your city council person, attend meetings, all these things. I'm like, well, I don't really have time. I'm not really interested. I'm like, well, you are interested. And how would you really know if you've never engaged in it? You know, and I think sort of bringing politics to a personal level is really the only way you can try and build that connection. You know, we really do not teach civics uh, in Oklahoma or generally across this country very well. And so I think there is a huge disconnect between how people believe government operates and how it really does. And so that being said, you know, it's very easy when you are living comfortably, I think, to um, feel like you don't really need to get involved in politics or you don't really need to utilize your, you know, rights that you have as a citizen or as a member of a community um, to make it better. But ultimately, if you are in a comfortable position, you have even more of an obligation to utilize that space as a way to make life better for the people who are most marginalized. Because if someone's working three jobs and they're like, I don't like politics, I'd be like, well, I get it. When do you have time to follow politics? And why would you care when so clearly you have been written off as disposable by those who are making the policies? Yeah. You know, Scott and I try to often distinguish, at least on the podcast, about the the interrelatedness but the difference between politics and government right or governance and that i think increasingly politics deals with 
the showmanship, the the horse trading, the drama of it all, when what most people are actually concerned about is are things working, right? Is there corruption? Am I able to get the the services that I need, right? Is someone picking up my trash? Do I have a water service? You know, what are my taxes like? And am I getting a return on my investment of my taxes? Like pretty normal everyday stuff. And otherwise we're just trying to live our life. Um, and so the times that people do get concerned are when that doesn't happen, right? Like when something is broken and it causes a pain to them um, and it hurts their budget, it affects their family, the state bans school districts from requiring masks, you know, like whatever it is, um, is when you see people tune in more. Well, and I, I, I do think the elephant in the room is, is January 6th, which puts so many people over the edge. They just don't want to think about it. Um, people are starting to come out of that. And I have to say the, the women we've reached out to, to run have overwhelmingly been, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of I'm afraid or I'm not into this. Um, but, but we do, when we go, when we recruit, we're looking for a person who's already been in public service, either in an elected position or, or whatever the job they're holding. Um, as you were saying earlier, we don't have a lot of districts we're, we're recruiting in probably six strong viable districts and then three or four more that are, have been redistricted, not in our favor, but I'd love to get someone to run there anyhow, because I want to give whoever's there a run for their money. And then of course we always have a couple sitting <laughs> incumbents. We just want to punish in any way we can, no matter where they are. But uh, I, I think people are kind of getting, getting back up and thinking about the future. And uh, I mean, if you don't like what's going on, you're not going to like even more what's going to go on. So if you step back, then they're going to help. So I, I'm curious how you, you know, talking about talking about you know districts where, you know, so I, I had a candidate um, reach out to me recently ish, um, and their and their question because the race that they were, the race they were considering, they were just like, hey man, I I just what do you think? This I'm I'm thinking about doing this, but it seems like this would be a just you know, quote unquote the impossible like it's impossible to win. So like, what's the point? And my answer was first of all, there's no race that's impossible to win because you never know what's going to happen. People compete. People have scandals all the time, right? Certainly, we don't hope. You know, I personally don't hope for anyone to ever become personally you know ill or have a, or something but like those kinds of things happen like you never know what happens like no one can predict the future so i would say that no race is ever like hopeless but assuming that all other things remain static there are races that are going to be really really challenging just like there are races there are races in oklahoma that are really challenging for democrats to win there are races in oklahoma that we really challenging for a republican to win i think it'd be hard for uh for a republican to win hd88 for instance right um when you're talking about trying to recruit candidates to run in those districts or races where it is, it's going to be really, really tough. What is your approach and how do you talk to them about why those races are still important? Even if, you know, even if you're not likely to, to pull the victory out. We don't generally recruit in those races anymore. Um, I used to think before 2018, if past performance or registration numbers showed, and I'm going to talk Democrat, Republican now, even though we're nonpartisan, if the registration, Democrat registration was 40% in a district, it was a non-starter. 
we had several women win in 2018 in districts with 37, 38% Democrat registration. It was an unusual year. I mean, we're all, we're all going to say that, that I don't think that sort of opportunity is going to happen again. A couple of them got turned out in 2020. Um, we had one Joanna Dossett who won a Senate seat in Tulsa, not great registration numbers for Democrats, but she was an amazing candidate and started early, had the Dossett name, although her views are very different than her brother. She will make that very clear to you. Um, but for instance, Molly Uten ran in the special Senate race to fill Stephanie Bice's seat. That was a 22% Democrat registration. And, and we had been working with her. She was going to run for county commission um, for Kevin Calvey's seat. And she switched over to that. And she, I talked to her, she said, what do you think? I said, you're not gonna win, but if you're looking for name recognition and getting donors lined up for you and then going back to the county commission race, absolutely do it. Um, but generally, if, if and we if we don't turn anyone away. If someone comes to us and says, "I'm running for this district," we say, "Come to the training. We will sit with you." Um, you know, our the value of what we offer. It's not a by the hour dollar amount. So for us to sit with someone and work for a few hours is fine, no matter what their chances are. But we are really honest about. I, I remember we had someone last. It's been a few years now. Said want to run somewhere. It's like 24% Democrat. Registration. I said, you're not going to win. She said, you know, there's always a chance. I said, there's no chance. She said, you never know. I mean, just went back and forth. I said, no, I know. But um, it, it, it's pretty certain if it's under 35%, if you want to do it again, name recognition, maybe, as you say, things change. Uh, Cindy Munson is our favorite example. She lost the first time in a historically Republican district. Representative Dank passed away suddenly. Cindy had done an incredible amount of groundwork, name recognition, everything. And she really, she focused on Republican voters. She's very different. She's not really the model of what, what most candidates do. But she got out there and the next time she ran, she won. Um, and, and you don't, who knows? Like you say, you just don't know what scandal's gonna run across the road. Um, so. But yeah, I would also add to that, you know, I think that, um, well, Sarah Jane's right, you know, in a lot of races where there's such a low percentage of Democratic voters, there is a low chance. But I think it's also important. And this is something, you know, when you talk with rural organizers, they'll say over and over again, the data is bad. Like, the data is bad. The data has not been updated. No one has gone out and actually knocked doors in these areas. No one has actually really updated the van in years in many places. And while a lot of times, you know, I think um, politicos will look at presidential turnouts or, you know, statewide turnout uh, responses on votes as an indicator of uh, viability. Again, I will, you know, say over and over again, the data is bad. There are people who have not been contacted, who have not had anyone show up and ask them to register to vote, have not had anyone show up and say, what do you care about in years? So I think part of why it's important that people run in those races is so that the people who do vote in that area don't feel completely abandoned by the Democratic Party and by the progressive movement. And then secondly, I would say, I think it's really important for rural communities to focus on local races, which is why 
Um, as Sarah Jane mentioned, it's been something I'm really passionate about is building um, connections in rural Oklahoma to help fix the data issue, really, because we have to start in the more populated sections of these rural areas, clean up the local data, and then hopefully build enough momentum to start doing it out in further rural areas. But you're like, yeah, it's not likely that someone's going to run and win in a statewide or, you know, legislative race out in rural Oklahoma right now, but the groundwork has not been laid. And I also wonder too, and this is, I'm spitballing here because, you know, as you mentioned, one, the data isn't good and, and I don't have the bad data at my fingertips right now either. So, um, but I, I do, you know, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that I think, you know, you know, Democrats are going to go out and, and win in 75, 25 districts. But I do wonder if, you know, first of all, you lose every race that you don't compete in. Right. Um, but, but also, you know, if you go out to some, some of these districts and, and if you lose them 65, 35, instead of 80, 20, right. I mean, if you lose 10 districts by 35 points instead of 80 points, that may not make a difference in the state legislature, but it might make a difference in a gubernatorial race, and it might make a difference in a Senate race. Right? We don't we don't have an electoral college in Oklahoma. You get the most votes, you win. And so, while there are people <clears throat> who look at Oklahoma City and Tulsa and say, "Hey, run up the margin in in urban areas," uh, I I think you're right, Alyssa, that we need to be doing a lot more work in in areas where we we don't have nearly as much infrastructure, we don't have nearly as much data because the thought is that we can't win. And I guess my my thinking is, well, trying to win that legislative seat is not always the point. <laughs> like it would be great if we did, but that's not the only goal. It's, it's very heartbreaking to look at the results on election night and see how many races are uncontested, how many house races are uncontested. Um, I do believe in a perfect world, there should be an opponent in every race. Um, I There's some deceiving numbers in Eastern Oklahoma in terms of, of what looks viable. County parties really step up. That's, that is their job, is to find candidates for those outlying districts. We can't really recruit word of mouth in Okmulgee or something. They, they It's the county parties. Who, and they've been some of them have been excellent at doing this. Some not so much, but there are you know it's a lot of counties. So, um, but I agree, it would be great to have an opponent, you know, a Democrat opponent in every single race. Um, and then we always weigh that with: Do you want someone running who's doing a terrible job? That's that's a problem because then you drive away voters. Finally, say, oh, thank goodness, here's a Democrat on the ballot, and they, then it's like, oh God. You know, I don't want to vote for this person. Not Just, a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. So are they going to stay away the next time? Or you get perennial candidates that run year after year mm -hmm. and get very few votes. So they just keep, they keep self-funding. And you're like, man, listen, if you had saved up that money and given it towards one candidate, you might have been able to have an impact here. Yeah. So, you know, my day job, I guess, these days is that I... I'm the director of the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. And so I talk to people across the country from both parties about what matters. And Alyssa, what you said earlier about like relational organizing is what I hear from everybody, right? That there is an increasingly large slice of the electorate, right? A, a larger and larger number of voters who have been ignored. Um, and as both parties talk to 
their base and and whomever they have scored in their voter file as being like part of their persuasion audience, right? And even that gets smaller and smaller. And so they're spending all their money on mailing stuff to just a few people and they ignore a bunch of others. I myself as a, am a registered, unaffiliated, uh, independent voter, I get very little mail, right? Um, and and I always think, man, I'm a I'm easily, not easily persuaded, but I'm like, uh, I'm fertile soil here, right? Like, come talk to me, come knock doors and uh, send me something, like make a phone call. And I, I got maybe, you know, I don't even think our, my house representative when they were running called me last year. Uh, and, and some of that's like, okay, well, maybe it's in the database. Maybe it's in the voter file. It, but- should, it should be in the voter file. You should be there. You, I, I know without asking you that you vote every opportunity. Right. You have. Yeah. As, right. and, and as an independent, you should be in the bucket that that can, candidate's going after. Uh, right. So it's surprising you- that you're not hearing from your candidate. But that's part of it, right, is they look at how regularly a person votes. And if they are someone who regularly votes and they believe that they're probably left leaning because you're an urban independent. They're they, somebody, they just see your name. They just yeah. see your name. Yeah. Right. Like, like you're saying, Andy, that's part of the problem is, you know, we I think oftentimes because in many ways, I, for better or worse, campaigns have become um, a science or a um, business in many ways. The relational organizing aspect of running for office has not been as sexy for many candidates, right? Like, I think there are candidates across the state who do that very well and they show up for their community and they make sure that they are available to people and that people know them as a person and not just an elected official. But um, yeah, it's not easy to find someone who is willing to go do all of this legwork to you know, try and build momentum in a place where there hasn't been any momentum for years. Yeah, and you know the, the other thing, earlier today I recorded an episode for my other podcast um, for Nanner, which is called How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. You can find it everywhere podcasts are found. Um, but I interviewed John Opdyke, who is the president of Open Primaries and a staunch supporter of independent voters uh, his whole life. And we were we were talking about this and he, I thought, uh, did a good job of explaining that that independent or unaffiliated voters, which nationwide now comprise 40% of all registered voters, right? And it's growing all the time. In Oklahoma, it's not quite that big. It's in the 30s, but it is almost as large as the Democratic Party, right? And they are often excluded from research or maligned or um, political scientists will try to, they'll be like, well, do you lean one way? And as soon as you say, well, maybe, ha, ah, okay, you're not really independent. And it's like, okay, well, that, you just, that was a gotcha. That's not the way it actually is. And that, so that makes independent voters both like the most and the least significant group of voters that are not being targeted. Like they have a ton of potential, but because they are often uh, excluded, ignored, or otherwise disenfranchised, right, through closed primaries and that kind of thing, then independents don't turn out at the same rate, not because they don't want to, but sometimes they're not able to, right? So in a, in Oklahoma, we have a a hybrid or a partially closed primary system 
where the Democratic Party for the last few cycles has allowed independents to vote. But if you happen to be a, a more conservative leaning or right leaning independent and you think, well, I don't want to vote in the Democratic primary because I would feel like an interloper. Right. But you can't vote in the Republican side. And so, I mean, John and I were talking about the the ways, the merits of having open primaries and the impact that that could have on elections as a whole, including in, in states that are that are staunchly a one party state, right? A majority like Oklahoma, it would still open up quite literally the electoral system to allow more participation. And the end result is we would get more female candidates, more community, more candidates of color, and just generally better, more representative candidates um, from both parties, right? Because they would have a chance. Absolutely. You know, we our, our feeling is always independent voters, uh, urban independent voters. We assume are we're going to have more on on the left side, and that the rural independent voters are going to fall more to the right side, but. They do make, they can make a difference in an election very clearly. They've lost elections for candidates because if there's been an independent candidate, obviously he's taken, it was like the, is it Ralph Nader? Is that what happened with Ralph Nader in that election? He, he, he got enough independence that um, whoever was running, God help me. I don't even remember. It was probably before you guys were born. Um, the Dem lost the presidency because Nader wooed so many people away. Um, and that's painful. You know, that's we, we don't want independents to feel like we don't like them. You know, I, the independents I know are some of the most thoughtful people I know. They've really weighed heavily. Do I feel like this party is serving me and my needs? And many of them have decided, no, the party system is not working for the country and me. And like you, they just they, they register independent. Yeah. It's, uh, I am really interested to see what happens over the next 14 months, right? As we go into the 2022 election, you know, here, once redistricting is done and everyone knows in which district they live, camp campaign season is going to kick off and it's going to be a mad dash to the next year with the midterms, the, all the statewide offices, you know, all of the state legislature, well, almost all the state legislature and Congress and all of this. Um, I, Scott, you know, it was four years ago that we hosted the election night show at the tower theater. That maybe blows my mind. Maybe COVID will be gone. We could do it again. That was super fun. That was awesome. It was, it was awesome. a really, really fun event. I'm going to go back and watch those videos. Right. <laughs> By the way, if, if a woman comes to us and says she wants to run as an independent, let's say no. I'm not going to work with you, but because there's no chance and I get it. I totally understand the, the integrity of it, but you're not going to win a seat. No. And in a state where so many voters vote straight party on the ballot, right? Like that is a, a high mountain to climb anyway from both sides. Right. I mean, and it really is tough. And I think, uh, I will say independence, like, by our nature, we're not organized. And so we're not voting as a block. And so it does, I get why, you know, candidates ignore us and I get why um, we are like a, a wild card, but also it'll be interesting as a, as a growing wild card, the, the system, right. The, the political marketplace has to figure out how to better 
handle this. Yeah. And, you know, I've been reading a bit up on um, sort of the Libertarian Party's uh, plan to invest heavily in Oklahoma over the next several years. So I think that there is going to be a certain level of right-leaning um independent libertarian ideology that does really uh, potentially take off in the next couple of years here. So the more we can do to wrangle. I'm rubbing my temples again. Yeah. yeah. I, see, I see it and I was about to do it myself, but you know, don't tread on me, but please take my trash away. Yeah. 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 It is interesting. I actually know a couple of libertarians that have switched to Democrats. Um, and that was like a weird shift for me it just unexpected i guess so yeah good for them but whatever i guess so. yeah that's fair uh sarah jane and Alyssa, it was lovely to see you today thank you for being here we love this is, we tell people our favorite interview ever with with you guys three years Aww. ago we we're happy well, to invite it back well, well good. thanks for you're coming welcome. yeah you're welcome anytime okay uh listeners if you'd like to learn more about sally's list including uh, what they stand for, their resources, and their trainings, go to sallyslist.org. Yeah, and I will do one more plug, if you don't mind. In October, we are planning on having an event if COVID is not the hellscape it currently is. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes peeled on the Sally's List Facebook and your inbox if you sign up for our emails, and we will keep you updated about a really good party at 21C. We, we were pretending we met with them the other day to go over the menu and they were very funny. We said, we're all going to pretend this is happening. Let's just <laughs> move forward. So, yeah, you, you picked a, you picked a great place. I've, I've been to yeah. some, they do a really good job. I mean, it's a beautiful facility and I've, I've been to some fantastic events at 21 C. So good. let's fix this. Had an adult prom there. We did. It was awesome. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, Scott, thanks for being here too, man, man. Wouldn't miss it. I, I know. That's why we do it every week. Yeah. All right. Uh, next week, I think it's just, Scott, it's just you and I next week. And then on, uh, ooh, maybe for the next two weeks. And then on September 3rd, we're going to have State Labor Secretary Leslie Osborne is going to join us. Friend of the show. Love to have her on. Yeah, that's right. We, uh, we had coffee the other day. It was good to catch up. All I right, will never uh, forget showing up to my house because she was she was going to record and we were both late and she was just sitting on the front steps to my house and I was like, oh God, I'm so mortified. You, she, you were late. I was there with her. We were going to eat my mosquitoes in your front porch. You texted yeah. me and said, please don't let my dog eat, eat uh, uh, Representative Osborne. Yeah, yeah. And then she, she was an OG. She, we, she recorded in Upper Room Studios, man. That's true. That's right. I also like... Uh, she just it was very casual like she was like i'm just one of you people uh, it was good so we look forward to having her back on the show even if it's virtual all right listeners thank you for being here you're why we do this um please go to letsfixthis.org and sign up for our email list if you haven't already we will have some uh, exciting events coming out soon in fact you can join our book club we're doing we're reading the politics industry by Catherine Guile and Michael Porter. We've only had one episode so far. We're going to have three more, so it's not too late. Our next one is on um, the um, uh, August 28th, 29th, 29th will be the next one. So thanks for being here, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>